0: This is Dumbarton Rock, not too far away from the industrial powerhouse of Glasgow. Once a giant of the shipping industry during the heyday of the British Empire. Huge vessels from the Titanic to World War II destroyers once regularly came up these waters on the Western Isles of Scotland. Into the Firth of Clyde, the deepest of Britain's coastal seas. Today, since the decline of the shipping industry, this is one of the most deprived areas in the UK. Though peripheral now, it hasn't always been that way. In pre-modern times, Dumbarton has always been an especially sought-after strategic location. An impressive fortress guarding the entrance to the River Leven where the salt water of the western seaways meets the crystal clear runoff from Loch Lomond to the north. It is a commanding position, probably the best naturally occurring one in all of Britain. For on the very edge of the coastal spit is an extinct volcano. Untold eons ago, this peak, then unfathomably taller than it is now, spat its last dying breath, entering a new life as a ready-made fortress for an early British kingdom. There's still a castle here today, the oldest in all of Scotland. To say this place is ancient would be an understatement. Its history stretches far back before the written word into the dark mists of the Iron Age and before. Later, it was the site of a Roman settlement. Perhaps a fortress of the long-lost province of Valentia, on the very edge of the world. But when Rome fell is when our history begins. For then, sometime in the murky 5th century, as barbarian empires and mercenary kings took hold of the continent. This place emerges into the written record as a pirate fortress. A stronghold for a warlike British kingdom, soon to be one of the greatest of all. Our first reference in the written record comes from St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland. In a letter chiding a certain king, Caroticus, then engaged in enslaving recently Christianized Irishmen for sale to pagan men. In legend too, this is a storied place, said to have been visited by the likes of Merlin and King Arthur, and spoken of by Gildas and Nennius. Archaeology tells us that this was an especially rich place. The elites here enjoyed access to goods from all over the Mediterranean, with material items originating all the way on the other side of Europe, in Constantinople. But the culture here was a uniquely British one, speaking the Brythonic language of their ancestors. Finally, by the early 7th century, When the Irish Annals of Ulster record the death of King Gurret, the King of Clyde Rock, a much more literary period takes hold of Britain. Ushering in a lengthy 200-year period for the citadel as one of the foremost powers of Britain. As powerful as most other kingdoms in its day, and arguably the one with the most unassailable fortress. By the 9th century, the area around alt Clute, as Dumbarton Rock was then known, was an especially varied place. Not just Britons lived on these coasts, but Irishmen, Picts, Scots and English too. The sea was a highway in those days, connecting islands, rivers, people. But it also brought death. For in the 9th century, a new group had arrived in the region. In 870, Vikings came to Dumbarton Rock. Sailing up the Clyde on a huge fleet of dragon headed longships, the fortress was put to siege. Yet, King Artgal's people had weathered sieges before. Many times, in fact, Picts or Dalriartans from the north had ridden down to try and put this place to the sword. Not to mention the old enemy of the Anglians from the south. All had failed. Yet, none of them had had the determination or the resources of these newcomers. Both the Irish and Welsh annals relate what happened next. After four months and a valiant last stand, the water supply on the top of the citadel ran dry, and the garrison, having no other choice, surrendered. A siege of four months was unprecedented at this time, and whilst Dumbarton Rock remained impregnable, the Vikings simply had the resources to wait them out. Far from simple raiding, this had been a determined political move. Boarding the 200 dragonships of the Norse fleet to enter a new life of slavery in the markets of Dublin, the Britons of Dumbarton Rock could not deny it anymore. A new power had arisen on the Irish Sea and it was now completely unstoppable. This wasn't just plunder. The Viking rulers of the attack had sought to destroy British power in the north, taking it for themselves. According to the Irish sources, it wasn't just Britons either, but a great prey of English and Picts too, suggesting a long campaign. Artgal, the King of Old Clute, may have been amongst the prisoners, along with his family. In the next year, he died, perhaps in captivity in Dublin. His son Rune survived, setting up a new kingdom further inland at Govan, away from seaborne attack. Yet the region would never be the same again, in time taking on Scandinavian aspects. Its mighty stronghold ruined and smouldering on the horizon, many of its people killed or enslaved. A somewhat fanciful later account also talks of the death of another king, suggesting that many people had been taking refuge at the fortress. Mael Guala, an Irish king of Caesle, his back broken on a stone. The perpetrator was a man who'd already killed two anointed kings in the previous two years, known in the Irish sources as Emar. He is more widely known as Ivar the Boneless, called by Adam of Bremen, the most gruesome of all the Danish kings who ravaged Francia, a man who killed Christians by torture wherever he went. He'd already destroyed two ancient and revered kingdoms in Britain, and now he'd done a third. Ivar the Boneless, more of an impact on British history than most individuals. His life in the English sources alone would make this true, but if indeed he is the same figure as Imar, it makes him all the more extraordinary. He was probably the most successful Viking in history, his descendants major players for centuries famous in saga, and now on television? Let's find out the real history behind the myth. This episode of History Time is sponsored by CuriosityStream, a subscription-based streaming service that offers thousands of documentaries and non-fiction titles from some of the world's best filmmakers including exclusive originals you can't find anywhere else. The world's first streaming service dedicated entirely to learning, with categories including history, science, nature, technology, society and lifestyle. Just like other streaming services, you can watch CuriosityStream on all of your devices. And best of all, you can get access to all of it for just $2.99 a month with your first 30 days completely free of charge if you sign up using my link. There's so much to watch on this service that I've honestly been spoiled for choice. Recently, I've been watching Storm Over Europe, a four-part series charting the history of the Germanic peoples who inherited Europe from the Roman Empire, as well as loads of other great history documentaries on Rome, ancient history, and more head on over to curiositystream.com forward slash history time for unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and non-fiction titles, and get 30 days free. There are links to everything in the description below. Now, back to Vikings. The tale of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons is one of the great stories of the Viking Age. For more than a thousand years, it has captivated audiences. From medieval mead halls, to Victorian high society, to 21st century TV drama. Every few decades, it seems to gain new life by being told and retold again. Like Beowulf solidifying its place in the great tales of early medieval literature. Of course, like any great tale, Ragnar's saga grew in the telling, probably like the slightly earlier Arthurian legends and Homer's Odyssey 2000 years before, absorbing other stories into itself as it was told and retold down the ages. Ragnar's death in Aelus' snake pit, for example, is clearly modelled on an earlier legend of Gunnar's death in King Atli's snake pit and likewise, his descent from the legendary King Sigurd could easily have been bolted on, much like later kings claimed their own descent from Ragnar. It may well be that since Ragnar's story was so giant, other Vikings, such as Bjorn Ironside, simply ended up being pulled into orbit by its gravity, much like the great Greek heroes of old ended up being pulled into the Odyssey and the Iliad. But at the heart of it, is there any truth to the tale? The telling of stories has always been an important part of life for the Germanic peoples of Northern Europe. Ragnars is but one story in a long tradition of skaldic poetry, dating well back into the murky past of the migration period and earlier. Stories we only have brief hints of, such as the Finsberg fragment and Beowulf perhaps hundreds of years in the telling before being written down. Originally part of an oral tradition, for Scandinavians, these stories only began to be written down in the late 12th and early 13th centuries in Iceland, by writers such as Snorri Sturluson. This is where we find the saga of Ragnar and the stories of his sons. Yet, we also find an earlier source too, a 9th century scald quoted by Snorri. His name was Bragi the Old, and according to Snorri, he told an early version of Ragnar's story. There are other hints too, scattered around the historical record. There was a genuine Reginarius spoken of in Frankish sources at the same time Ragnar was supposed to have lived. And writing 200 years later, 11th century writer Adam of Bremen, for example, Ivar the Boneless, a son of Lodbrok. Though nevertheless, little is known of Ivar's early life besides what the semi-historical sagas tell us. His epithet, the Boneless, for example, has caused much speculation over the years. Ragnar's saga tells us that Ivar was unable to walk and had to be carried everywhere. But this is a later source and it isn't the only place that we find information on Ivar. The name may simply stem from a botched version of exosus, the Latin for the hated. Boneless may originally have been some sort of a term for a skilled seafarer, for that he undoubtedly was, and from a long line of them, if the tales are to be believed. As Ivar becomes a man, however, What we lack in accuracy in the saga tradition, hundreds of years after the events described, is made up for with contemporary accounts, of which we have many, for Ivar is definitively known to have been a real person, slipping out of legend and onto the pages of history. In the year 793, Strangers from across the sea arrived at the Northumbrian monastery of Lindisfarne. One of the holiest sites in all of Christendom. Initially assuming them to be traders, a number of the monks present went down to meet these newcomers on the shore. Out in the surf, they were met there with sword and anger many irreplaceable relics and holy books lost forever. In the next year, they were back, hitting nearby Jarrow, and nearly every year to come, similar reports would be heard. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, having no fortified cities, ports or navies to speak of, were completely unprepared for this style of attack. England's Viking Age had well and truly begun. At around the same time as this, in 799, the Frankish sources record a group of Scandinavian pirates being executed on an Aquitanian shore. In truth, it would be here, on the continent, that some of the worst attacks would be weathered in the coming decades. Especially from the 840s onwards, when several competing companies perhaps including that of Ragnar Lothbrok, infested their river systems. Heading back over the channel, unfortunately, we have very little surviving information on the kingdoms of East Anglia and Northumbria during this time, which were probably some of the worst areas hit due to their close proximity to the North Sea. Our surviving records almost exclusively coming from Wessex. If these kingdoms had kept their own records, which it is likely that they did, they have been lost since, perhaps in the fires of Viking invasion. We have brief hints of political events going on, such as a Northumbrian usurper named Raidwolf being killed in 844 by Vikings. Perhaps these were mercenaries fighting for one side in a civil war. Likewise, during this era, East Anglia once more emerged as a military power, able to hold its own against the other kingdoms, following a century of outside domination and the neutering of its armed forces by Mercia. Perhaps they too utilized mercenaries from across the sea to fight their battles for them. Unfortunately, due to the scarcity of sources, we simply can't ever know for sure. But by 8.51, the situation had changed. In that year, a force of 350 ships is recorded as coming across the channel to overwinter in England for the first time. They tried their luck against London several times, ultimately failing, but using Sheppey as a staging ground against Francia a refuge for hardened veterans, fighting mostly in the breakup of the Carolingian Empire on the continent. Yet this is all just a preview. Soon enough, they turned their full attention to Britain. But it isn't here where Ivar's career begins. For that, we have to turn to a very different set of sources, and a very different land. In 794, whether it was the same band that attacked Lindisfarne, we can't be sure. But Vikings attacked the monastery of Iona, most holy site in Gaelic Christianity, and consequently one of the richest, carrying off goods and treasures and the promise of more back to their kinsfolk at home. In the coming decades, they and people like them would be back to stay, in windy inlets and stormy seas, in the islands and archipelagos of northern Britain. They found there a diverse plethora of peoples. There was the Gaelic kingdom of Dalriata, the Pictish people of the highlands, the Isle of Man and Anglesey too, with their unique cultures. Of course, the Brythonic kingdom of alt Clut and the Irish Kingdoms to the south. Since the fall of Rome, Ireland had been Christianity's wild west, acquiring Roman religion and, to a certain extent, way of life in the years after the collapse, without any of the towns or institutions. Though a few larger coalitions formed from time to time, Politics in Ireland was an incredibly complex affair, with hundreds of petty kings ruling at any one time. Thus, it would be much more difficult for Vikings to capture a kingdom here wholesale. Instead, they founded fortified long forts out of their ships along the coasts and rivers. In truth, Ireland's Viking Age was mostly over by the time of the Great Heathen Army. Scandinavians having lived there and integrated into the wars and conflicts fought by Irish kings for a generation or more. In the early 840s, following a terrible defeat inflicted on the Picts in 839, a group of Norwegians under a sea king named Thorgist founded the city of Dublin on Ireland's eastern coast. It would soon grow into one of the most important cities in the Viking world. Other Scandinavians set themselves up in other areas of the north, such as the sea king Ketil Flatnose in the Western Isles. But none were more successful than the Dublin Norse in establishing a viable economic hub. Thorgist soon found himself killed by local Irish kings, thrown into a lock. And by the early 850s, a new group arrives in the city, known in the Irish sources as the Dubgale or Dark Foreigners, taken by some historians to mean Danes, as opposed to the original Norwegians. A civil war ensued, and when it finally came to an end, an alliance between two groups had been formed, led by two men, Olaf the White, son of the King of Lathland, though we don't know where that is, and Imar. Interestingly, a late medieval chronicle, the Annals Rienzis, mostly based on the Danish chronicler Saxo Grammaticus, but also using another now lost text, records Ragnar's death in Ireland in 854. Perhaps another hint to a long-lost story. In 857, Imar's career begins, launching into a determined process of allying with one Irish king against another in order to pursue his own political ends, always supported by his ally and possible brother, Olaf. Another long term ally was the Irish king of Osri, Kerbal MacDunlange, who used Scandinavian support to hold his own against his overkings, the northern Neill, ranging far and wide as a Viking raider in the process. By 863, after a relatively successful career, Imar disappears from the Irish annals, going elsewhere. Olaf is recorded attacking Pictland in 865, but Imar had another destination in his mind, only reappearing back in the Irish sources five years later to destroy Dumbarton Rock out of the blue. In year 865, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, writing with the benefit of hindsight, describes a great army of heathens arriving on the marshy island of Thanet, off southwestern Britain. A haven for pirates for generations. Though few would be aware at the time, this army, the culmination of two generations of Viking raids, would eventually grow into the most fearsome invasion force seen in Britain since the Anglo-Saxons first arrived over 400 years before. Likely a multinational force of semi-autonomous ravaging bands, led by warlords and military strongmen, many of whom had originated within Britain and Ireland. The overall leadership of the expedition ...is generally attributed to two men. Ivar the Boneless and Halfdan... ...supposedly brothers and sons of the legendary Ragnar Lothbrok. A third brother is added by the later writer Abo of Fleury... ...potentially originating in Frisia... ...saying that he and Ivar were united by the Devil. A hoard of silver discovered around this time gives further hint of where these men had been. A number of Frankish coins can be found, from the reigns of Louis the Pious and Charles the Bald. Along with a multitude of English pennies, melted down silver from previous raids, but also Islamic dirhams. The force soon moved on to the Kingdom of East Anglia. Apparently not yet ready for a fight, or simply willing to extort wherever they could, the army accepted food, horses, and shelter from King Edmund. He probably knew Scandinavians well. After all, he'd been dealing with them his entire life. In fact, political alliances with Vikings were not uncommon at this time. Far from the end of the world as often portrayed, there were many who saw opportunity and personal gain in the coming of the Norsemen, utilising their services as swords for hire for their own ends. In 864, for example, Pippin, the nephew of King Charles the Bald of Francia, had gone Viking himself, leading the Annals of saint Battan to speak in horror of his living like a heathen amongst the Danes. Innumerable Irish kings had done the same, and in the coming years, many Anglo-Saxon rulers would do it. Yet, if Edmund had willingly let the Norsemen into his kingdom, he'd sorely underestimated them. For this time was different. In the Viking Age, reputation was all, and throughout the winter of 865, as word spread of the great mustering in Britain more and more warbands came to join them. In the spring of 866, Charles the Bald paid a large Danegeld to get a warband to leave his kingdom. Others were driven away by disease. In time, they drifted across the channel to Britain. Finally, by the summer of 866, the army was ready to move on to its first target and what a target it was. By the middle of the 9th century, the once mighty kingdom of Northumbria had fallen on hard times. The homeland of England's first historian, Bede, and Charlemagne's mentor, Alcuin, along with all manner of other individuals, vital for the golden age ushered in in the 7th and 8th centuries, This had once been a homeland of intellectual heavyweights. Archaeology tells us that this was an especially prosperous place too. Since the 1980s, excavations on Fishergate and Coppergate revealed exotic lava stone querns originating from Germany. Frankish fishing vessels, with combs and other handcrafted items traded by Frisian merchants the great middleman of the Carolingian trade network, who actually lived inside the city. As well as a thriving local jewellery industry, producing exotic items laced with garnets and emeralds. The city of Iofawich had once been a major node on the Roman road network, which was still used at this time. It also had an impressive Roman wall, built in the third century and repaired ever since. In short, it was a great place to capture, a foothold on the island, easier than London, which had been attempted several times already. On a good year, Northumbria should have been an impossible target, but now it was riven by civil war and and on-and-off situation, known as the Long Winter, felt near persistently since the 8th century. In 858, Osbert, the rightful king, had been ousted by Aela, probably a scion of another noble family, and one, according to the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, with no hereditary claim. The history of St. Cuthbert says both men robbed lands from the church to support their claims. And war raged on. Could this be the conflict Ragnar Lothbrok became involved in? Perhaps as a mercenary? We can't be sure. But we do know that by 866, Northumbria, once the mightiest of kingdoms, had never been weaker. Riding up from the south on horses, as well as taking their fleet up the coast, Ivar chose All Saints Day, November the 1st, to attack the city. A similar trick to the one supposedly used by Ragnar at Paris on Easter Day, and later by Guthrum, who attacked Alfred during the Christmas celebrations. Swiftly taking control of the city, the fall sent shockwaves throughout the land. The two Northumbrian kings soon set aside their differences, coming together for a fight back. Perhaps to throw the Vikings off by playing them at their own game, they chose Palm Sunday, the 23rd of April, as their counter-attack. Some Danes were caught outside the city walls and killed. In high spirits, the Northumbrians rushed into the city. but it was a trap. There, in tight city streets, where their superior numbers couldn't be utilised effectively. They were massacred, sliced down one by one by veterans who'd been waiting for them. We don't know exact numbers, but the important dead are noted. Eight Eldermen, along with both kings. Northumbria bringer of Christianity to Britain and font of the Carolingian Renaissance, was dead. According to the tale of the Sons of Ragnar, however, the story doesn't end there. As revenge for his father's death, Ayla was not only captured by Ivar, but suffered the terrible indignity of the Blood Eagle. A grisly execution. ...wherein the back is sliced open and lungs pulled out to resemble wings. Yet, as we have already seen, this account was written down hundreds of years after the fact. Did it really happen? The early 11th century Scaldic poet Sigvat, praising his lord Canute, is the first to mention it. Saying that Ivar carved the eagle on Ayla's back but it isn't exactly certain what exactly the eagle is at this point. Sigvat may have simply wished to use poetic language to convey that eagles now feasted on Ayla's back, like carrion birds on a battlefield. It isn't until the 13th century that the gory details are first mentioned. Nevertheless, if this story had circulated at the time, It was probably exactly what the brothers wanted. A calculated strategy of fear in order to scare potential rivals away without lifting a finger. Psychological warfare, 9th century style. And as we shall see, it worked. All things considered, Northumbria had been easy. Riven by civil war as it was. Puppet king now in place, the army moved on, south to Mercia, and the next king on the agenda. King Burgred of Mercia would ultimately survive that confrontation at Nottingham, backed up by his ally King Ethelred of Wessex. Yet Ivar probably returned back to Æofovic with a hefty plunder. And the next year, the army was on the move again, this time to East Anglia, where they had unfinished business with King Edmund. There may have been a battle left unrecorded in the West Saxon records, or Edmund may have simply been taken by surprise. All we know for certain is that by 869, East Anglia, possibly the oldest of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and its king, Edmund were dead, two kingdoms down in four years, and another soon to follow. For Edmund's thanes and household warriors, it must have been like gazing at their own past as those raiders came charging towards the now Christian inhabitants of Beoderic's Worth at modern day Bury St Edmund's that year the earliest sources talk of Edmund dying in battle. But of course, we also have a slightly later source that has a life all of its own. In the mid-980s, a Benedictine monk, Abbo of Fleury, wrote an account of the king's death that would very quickly immortalize him, converting him into one of the most popular saints in English history. Abbo said that the church reformer, Dunstan, ...had witnessed this tale being told by King Edmund's swordbearer to King Athelstan... ...when he was a youth back in the 930s. At the time, Dunstan had been very young and the sword-bearer very old. And though fairly fantastical at times, some elements of the story may be true. On hearing news that Ivar is returning to his country, offering him joint kingship in return for survival, Edmund refuses to deal with him, arguing that he will only do so if Ivar converts to Christianity. Perhaps this is a half-remembered recollection of a deal gone wrong, an offer to be a puppet king like Egbert or Cheelwolf. Of course, Ivar not only refuses to convert, But, along with his brother, Ubbe, proceeds to torture Edmund in a variety of ways, before finally tying him to a post and filling him with arrows in a ritualised execution, with Ivar allegedly seeking to test the power of his god, by seeing if he would intervene to save the king. Whether the grisly details of the tale are true, the power grab certainly worked. Edmund's brother, now next in line for the throne, fled the kingdom to become a hermit. There would be no fight back in East Anglia. By the 13th century, another writer, Roger of Wendover's account, further made Edmund into a legendary figure, and for a time the de facto patron saint of the land. Ivar, of course, remained a great villain of English history. According to the historian Ethelweird, writing a century later, Ivar died not long after the martyrdom of Edmund. Divine justice finally catching up with the killer of kings. Yet, there is another possibility. After an absence of some seven years, Imar reappears in the Irish sources, ravaging the Western Isles with his ally Olaf the White. Perhaps using his newfound wealth and unrivalled reputation to once and for all bring the north of Britain under the control of the Dublin Norse. Creating a kingdom that spanned Ireland, Scotland and England. In this context, they fell on Dumbarton Rock, which never really stood a chance. The next couple of years are a bit of a mystery, as Halfdan tried and failed to conquer Wessex, turning on Mercia instead. We hear nothing of Imar until 873, when the Irish sources talk of his death from disease. Naming him at the time of his death king of the Northmen of all Britain and Ireland. Almost as soon as this happens, Halfdan heads north, perhaps seeing an opportunity to take up Ivar's position, concerning himself exclusively with northern affairs from then on, whilst the newly arrived Guthrum took up the war in the south. The last place that all of these men may have found themselves together is Mercia, where the kingdom was carved up. Its king, Burgred, finally forced into exile by 874. Here, at Repton, the ancient burial place of Mercian kings, archeology span since the 1970s has revealed what is very likely to be the remains of one of their camps, right on top of the Mercian cult center, a statement of intent on the landscape. There is a final twist in this tale. In 1686, a local digger named Thomas Walker decided to look inside one of the mounds dotting the landscape, in search for stones for construction, finding inside the remains of hundreds of skeletons, and in the centre one he described as a giant nine feet tall. The skeleton was later lost but by the time proper investigations began in the 1970s and it turned out that the remains may have been the war dead of the great army, most of them suffering serious battle wounds, it was of course cautiously suggested that the huge man might have been none other than Ivar the Boneless. Laid to rest in the very centre of the island, he did so much to transform. Hello, and thank you for watching History Time is a one-man team run by me, Pete Kelly. If you want to see me visiting ancient cities, medieval citadels, megalithic monuments, Iron Age hill forts, and so much more, then subscribe to my other channel by that same name. I'll also be making book reviews, video essays, and anything else that doesn't quite fit in to History Time. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you on the next one.